0: It's Eliza Philby here, historian, writer and host of It's All Relative. Now, it's been an extremely long time since this podcast appeared in your feed, but I just had to share some extra special content that we recorded over the summer. As with the first season, we have interviewed two different generations of the same famous family. This conversation though was recorded before the most recent episodes of political turmoil of the set Britain. But nonetheless, these reflections feel as relevant now as they did when they were recorded hope you enjoy listening to Alistair and Grace Campbell. If you are at all familiar with Alistair Campbell, chances are you have a strong opinion about him. As the former Director of Communications Tony Blair, Campbell's media management and message discipline was instrumental in making the Labour Party electable again. Once his time in the political spotlight was over, Campbell could so easily have faded into obscurity, retreating into corporate PR or the after-dinner speaking circuit like his predecessors. And yet he chose not to, finding fresh prominence defending Blairism in the age of Corbyn, campaigning for a second Brexit referendum, and most recently in the chart-topping The Rest is Politics podcast with fellow outlier, former Conservative MP Rory Stewart. Campbell has become one of the most thought-provoking campaigners on mental health, detailing his own struggles with addiction and depression, and doing so with a brutal honesty, an intellectual curiosity, and a political edge not to mention a level of self-reflection that you rarely see in public figures these days. I
1: could listen to this all day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Alistair is joined by his daughter, comedian and feminist campaigner Grace Campbell. Grace was just three when Labour won victory in 1997. Growing up in the political cauldron was the inspiration for her one-woman show at Edinburgh Fringe, Why I'm Never Going Into Politics. But it was her debut book, Amazing Disgrace, where her millennial feminist zeal was truly unleashed. When I was younger, she said, I wanted to be like my dad, someone who was loud, who could lead conversations and make
2: people laugh.
0: Grace, Alistair, welcome to It's I a absolutely Relative. absolutely
2: loved that. <laughs> That's, That's, one, I have she never one, heard one. anything so wonderfully, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, researched. I don't remember well. saying any of those things, but I definitely did. <laughs> Why
1: was I Campbell and she was Grace? Sorry? Why was I Campbell and she was Grace? And by the way, I'm 65 this month. Oh,
0: gosh. Oh, gosh. Okay. Don't worry. i that. <laughs> He's also not
2: a workaholic. He's asleep, like, all the time. <laughs> well, I've ha- well, I feel like I've lived
0: with both of you for the past week, actually, because I've been delving deeply into your writings, at your podcast that you did jointly together. What I'm intrigued by is your relationship. So I wondered, let's start with you, Grace. How would you describe your relationship
2: with your dad? I think it's good. He's very alpha, and then I've tried to be very alpha to sort of emulate his energy. So that has clashed at points, but we have a good relationship. Yeah, definitely. Is there anything that you feel
0: sort of cringe when you listen to her comedy, or you get embarrassed by? Uh,
1: I mean, some of the some of the sex stuff I could probably live without. Uh, if that's it was why he's
2: amazing. Because he, he would never be like, oh, I'm not coming or I can't sit through that. <laughs> Him and my mum, they're just so game. People ask me that all the time.
1: I think mum finds it even harder than I do. Yeah. I, what I do when I'm watching Grace perform... Actually, the Edinburgh show you mentioned, because that was a lot about us, That I just found that really funny to be in the audience. She's taking the piss out of me. The audience are looking around to see if I'm laughing. And I found it very funny. She's always been able to make me laugh ever since she was little. Um, And that's quite a big deal, I think, in any relationship. Um, And then there was one she did at Bush Hall recently, I went, and the audience was 90% young women. Um, I was definitely the oldest person in the room. I was one of a very small number of men. I was sitting next to Fiona, and she comes on, and the first thing she says is, go on to the audience, go on, admit it. You're looking and thinking, I bet she does anal.
2: My friend sat in front of them and said it was like the best thing in the world, because he would hear my dad go, "What did she just say?" <laughs> <laughs> and my mum would be like that she got chlamydia
1: <laughs> but you know I put myself into a kind of outer body situation. I, I, I pretend that I'm just watching a comedian
0: Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and likewise, then, Grace, do you kind of see your dad's tweets and be like, oh, Dad, or go on his Instagram
2: lives and be a bit <laughs> like, "Oh, please, just What's turn on the my p- Instagram lives. <laughs> when i was in i was um, in america last year and i woke up one day to like 20 dms from strangers on instagram saying hey i'm really sorry i'm not sure if you're gonna see this but your dad has done an instagram live and he's forgot to turn it off and he's just walking across <laughs> the heat and has bumped into neil kinnock and no, it's it's on just, it on it Rachel. it was rachel rachel yeah. neil's daughter Anyway, I woke up like eight hours too late because I was in America. <laughs> luckily, you realised before you bitched about anyone. And what do you disagree about?
1: I get a bit agitated by Grace's loudness. Uh, and I mean both her physical loudness, that she speaks very, very loudly. Fiona and I are very, very quiet in the way we speak. And also her, the loudness of her personality, so that, which I like most of the time, but sometimes it can be very, very wearing. You know, it's like if she comes, (laughs) if she comes, if something is going wrong in Grace's life, it isn't just that she's lost her phone. It's just that she's lost her phone and that is the biggest loss of any phone that there has ever been anywhere in the world. And why aren't we as upset and angry? So
0: what about politics? Grace, I read that you had a sort of flirtation with Corbyn.
2: Yeah, but that was when like Corbyn had somewhat of an appeal.
0: Did that oh, cause really any really ructions good.
2: between you two or were you just... Yeah, it did, but they were just both very patronising and they were like, we're old, you're young, we're you're smart, you're no, young. No, it wasn't that.
1: From, well, I remember we were on holiday in France and Grace said, I think I'll vote for Corbyn. And I was like, well, you know, if Corbyn becomes leader to the Labour Party, I think it's possible we'll never win again. By the way, you've asked me about her things that annoy me. I love Grace to bits, right?
2: Uh, by the way, I didn't get to say what I don't like about oh, him. Oh, sorry. We'll come back to that. We'll come <laughs> have we'll to it. Her. I've parked we'll it. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um,
1: is that she does sort of sometimes talk about things like politics as though she knows more than we do and she's got more experience than we have. And we don't really understand politics in the way that she does because she's young. Right, well, I think I understand politics... <laughs> Quite well, because I'm older and I've been involved in it for a very long time. But Grace will quite often say, you don't really know what you're talking about. I you.
2: haven't said that for years. Now <laughs> I've matured and I can see that you know more than I do on certain things, the same way I know more than you do on certain yeah, things. Yeah. Um, so so what, annoys
1: m- what annoys you about me?
2: I think you're a perfect human, <laughs> <laughs> honestly. Um, what you've just got absolutely no patience. You've got no patience. Mm. You very snap. You snap too easily. Mm. 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 But g- getting back to the generational divide, then, what makes it feel
0: most apparent? The generational. Well, this divide is kind of
2: what think. I'm saying because you would think, right? With like, I go on stage and I talk about the kinds of things that, like, even comedians I know who are my age, women, would never, ever, ever do if their parents were in the room, right? I've never ever ever felt that there's anything I can't say in front of them or there's a not a boundary that I can't push in my work. They've never read anything I've written and been like, oh, you can't say that, even if it's like slagging them off. Like they uh, it's something that I'm so feel so lucky to have, yeah. and it's why I've felt like I've got freedom to say what the fuck I want, like on stage. Don't <laughs> swear. <laughs> <laughs> But so I don't know if you're going to find much, because that would be the one Mm. thing that you might think that we'd have some, like, push and pull on, but we don't. So, I mean, look, we've got a generational divide on. He thinks I'm spoiled. He claims that he, like, grew up living in a gutter and, (laughs) like, really struggled in life. I don't believe it. Like, I met his parents. They seem really (laughs) middle class, but... He sort of has this narrative that like I've had it really I've easy have, have and like super <laughs> super spoiled and like nepotism and everything, which is true. What if like, so? If you are spoiled, whose fault is that? Parent.
1: A little bit. I don't think we do spoil them, <laughs> um, but it's things like no, it's less spoiled. I think Grace is unbelievably entitled in relation to us. <laughs> so like you know, if we're if we, if we if we have a plan to do something, but it doesn't fit with what Grace actually suddenly decides is a better thing to do. It's like we have caused World War III.
0: What I'm interested in is d- has, has, how has Grace influenced
2: your views on certain things? So maybe so fem- much. Feminism. Yeah, but mm. that's what I'm saying. We used to clash. He, he, I don't you know if you him. know, but he once did this LBC thing, phone in, and then I called in, and we were actually clashing quite a lot on things. And, like, you know, he would be so, oh, don't talk about your periods, or oh, don't talk about that. Whereas now I've pushed him to the point that he just sort of <laughs> is numb to it. You, yeah. have you become a better feminist? I was at a
1: football match the other day. It was a very kind of it was quite a blokey kind of session, and they were there was quite a lot of women's football was on the telly, Arsenal or West Ham, and there was a lot of kind of oh, who wants to watch women play football? And I was in this I think it's great women play football. Uh, I think I'd a, there's a possibility that I'd have been more in the other camp because I now see it on the I've got to see a bigger picture, mm-hmm. um, and I found no, I do think the. Grace definitely changed my view. He's been so
2: good at, like, if he gets asked to do something and it's like there's like one woman on the panel now, like, he'll observe that and comment on it and say, I'm not doing this unless it's like more diversely. And also, he's really good at calling stuff out now, like Mm. sexism when you see it online. I didn't even have to prompt you, and I'll go mm. online and you've done a, a cracking tweet about <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> a cracking tweet.
0: <laughs> Grace, can you just take us back what it was like to be a young kid running around the corridors of Number 10 and, and, and how that was and how that impacted you?
2: I didn't know any different, like mm. genuinely. He started working for Tony Blair when I was three weeks old, so it was all I knew, really. Actually, mm. what I w- found more difficult to get used to was when we were no longer powerful. <laughs> <laughs> That was awful. It's <laughs> the chauffeur gone. And I was no longer like meeting the Spice Girls and being able to go to whatever concert I wanted to go
1: to. You still, when, when have you never gone to a concert that you wanted to go I've to? I've wanted
2: Glastonbury tickets. Oh, I but hey, the I, don't, I don't, that's something we disagree on. I don't get the Glastonbury thing at all. No, I'm but not, so not going to What gun. I wasn't used to was when it suddenly stopped and he was at home all the time, and that was nice in a way, but then I was like, God, we're like not important or relevant anymore. I'm going to have
0: to do it myself. I'm <laughs> imagining this kind of coterie of kind of Blair babies, you know, kind of.
1: No, I think that the. the obviously, the Blair children, but they were probably the only children that. You, and and Philip, Philip Gould's Philip kids. Gould. No, and, and, and it was, you know, the fact that Fiona was working with Cherie. I, I remember once taking the Blair boys to an Oasis concert because neither of their parents could. Um, so there's sort of stuff like that. Um, and actually, you know, we've all done pretty well. You know, Tony's kids are. Really nice people. Uh, I th- hope my kids are, and I think they are, and I think most people who know them think they are. Um, and they're all sort of doing very different things. What I like about all three of our kids is that they're all doing stuff that I probably wouldn't do. We've got one son who's built up his own business that is basically in sports data and gambling, and got another son who's sort of, he, he did work in the Labour Party for a while, but then he's, he's gone into kind of strategy and he's b- involved in making films and Grace doing her comedy and uh, stuff. I suppose Grace, the ri- I think eventually Grace will will write a lot. I think she'll become a more prolific writer than at the moment. Um, I, and I love the fact that she's she's giving it a go at something that's incredibly difficult. I mean, you know, the truth is most comedians don't make it.
0: So I'm, I'm going to talk a, b- a bit about now social media. So who's more addicted to their phone? would
1: Definitely you say? him. No. I have a healthy relationship with my phone.
0: How,
2: how so? Let's see who's got higher screen time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Can you look? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but listen, I do my work. I write on the phone. Yours is way higher, by the way. <laughs> I just work harder. I get up early. <laughs> no, that's bullshit. Because Carter
2: is it? not a defense. He's on Twitter an average two hours and eleven minutes. A bullshit. Day. Absolute oh bullshit. Goodness. Not bullshit. All that
1: means is that my phone is What's on. What's that? I'm not G- on Twitter. Garage
2: Band. <laughs> what are you doing on Garage Band? <laughs> Okay, let's bring this back, let's bring this back. (laughs) Grace, put down the phone. I don't even know what it is. (laughs) Anyway, I win, so I have a healthy relationship with my phone. Yeah, it's
1: probably true. I don't actually engage on Twitter much. I tweet a lot. I get a lot of news out of Twitter, but I don't engage very much. So I don't get into that whole kind of... I sometimes do, and sometimes it's very unhealthy. Sometimes it actually is related to my mental health. Mm. Um, I had a really quite a bad spat with Johnny Mercer when he was the Defence Minister. Um, and it was one of those things where once I got into the fight I wouldn't stop um, but then I had a phone call from a mate who just said, "Listen mate, put your phone down off, uh, and I realized that I'd, I'd, I was going over the top and, I, and actually I was I was a bit manic and
2: That's true
0: How do you find managing your life on social media? Well
2: I actually have a really healthy relationship with social media like whenever I get trolled which is actually quite a lot just mm-hmm. because of like, who he is, and also doing comedy and like being a woman and whatever, it just does not bother me because I've been getting told that my dad's war criminal since I was fourteen years old. So I have such thick skin. So I have a, re- like, I'm really good at separating myself from it.
1: You get upset by some yeah. of the reviews in Edinburgh. Yeah, but that's completely
2: those. different than getting trolled. That's actually being
1: read by. Other and
0: people. I mean, in a way, Alistair, you were the original spin doctor, and we are now in a society where we are all lost spin I doctors. I think Julius Caesar was. <laughs> Oh, all right then. Okay.
1: (laughs) Vaini Vidi (laughs) Vici is one of the greatest soundbites of all time. But
0: wouldn't you agree that we have gone from a period 25 years ago where we were trying to manipulate the media narrative and it was relatively possible to do, to now we're all our own spin doctors trying to weave this best life narrative, which is incredibly corrosive for our mental
1: health? Yeah, I agree up to a point. But the funny thing that I find, because of the way that the mainstream media has developed... I find that, so you, you take the period that we're going through now with this whole kind of cultural war st- thing going on, um, you'd think with a more atomized social media landscape that it would be much harder for a government with a very clear, I think really unpleasant messaging narrative to be able to get that across. But because they've got the newspapers so in their pocket, mm-hmm. they can do it and they've got all these client journalists who are very, very loud and vocal on social media
2: the question wasn't but actually it about it politics. Let's stop. It is. It exactly. Thanks, Grace. more about its effect on our... Okay, so what... But he doesn't quite understand that because he doesn't consume social media in that way. My dad only consumes okay. social media in terms of politics and trees. Like, that's literally it. Football. Whereas, like, yeah, I'm football. Fine. Whereas, like, the way that... I'm fed and have been fed social media is a much more exactly what you're saying it's like look at um, how amazing my life is look at how great my partner is and you know that's something that I've just been countering and I've never ever Mm. again probably because I've got this really thick skin Mm. I think it's such bullshit Mm. and so like I and I think that's what I've always tried to do on social media Mm. is be very much more like you don't have to be like living this great. And do you think your, your
0: generation is turning against that kind of hashtag perfect life?
2: I think it's life. becoming quite cringe to still be doing that. I think. I mean, look, there are always going to be like basic people who like want that, but I think it is beca- it's not the sort of like popular consensus anymore. No, I think it's much cooler to be like, I don't, I don't like give a shit. I'll be honest about be what real. I'm going through. Yeah. I think this thing about
1: thick skins is interesting though because I, I funny enough. Roy Stewart and I talked about that this morning. Uh, where he was saying that my kind of view of politics, politicians, is they've got to be able to take it. And he said that's very limiting for the sort of person who might be be able to take it. Part of the book that I'm working on at the moment is about saying to young people, listen, if you really believe stuff, get involved and get engaged. And it's not saying you have to have a thin skin and ignore it, but you do have to learn how to deal with it. And I think it probably... But how
2: would you, because I I say this to to people a lot, because, like... I said like so many people like that I'm friends with who are really affected by it. Like there's this website called Tattle which is like Mm. evil, Mm. and they talk about me and my friends a lot on it. And I just don't read it. I have no desire to, and I never will. But it's like a horrible website. People bitch about like influencers and they talk about Anoni a lot on it, and she religiously reads it. And I can't understand why she does because it's like self harm. But when I say to her, just stop reading, it's like that's so much easier said than done. And so how do you? help someone develop a thicker skin. Well,
1: I think it's working out when it matters and when it doesn't. And I know that's e- also easier mm. said than done. Mm. But like I always say if you're being attacked a lot over stuff, you've got to decide for yourself, well, have they got a point? Mm. If you decide they haven't got a point, that it's just abuse, then just look the other way. D- don't let it into your head. Now, I know that's quite difficult, but it's something that I think you can develop and learn and Grace has done that, there's no doubt about that. Grace is absolutely brilliant, just sort of. I remember there's one in that Trump, <laughs> that Trump demo when mm. this guy comes up and he's... I, I thought he was going to hit me, right? And Grace is just straight in his face and I just kind of, you know, I just <laughs> disappear into the crowd.
2: <laughs> like a bulldog. <laughs> I'm thinking about this a lot at the moment. One of the most impressive things that I think that stand-up comedians can do is, is, like, talking to the audience, right? Not just, like, hecklers, but, like, the way that you, c- you can communicate with people, like, on the calf. I used to have a really bad temper... So if something like that happened when I was 15, I would have like lost my rag and then you'd have been shouting at me for shouting at the person. And the best way to deal with people like that is really calmly because it freaks them out because then they're more like, oh my God, Mm. I feel like an idiot because this person's in the face of me abusing them, just being so chill and like, I don't know why you care. You know, my friend said this thing the other day, this waiter was really rude to me and he was like really shouting at me for no reason. Just turned to him and said, you seem really distressed. Are you okay? (laughs) And that really freaked him out because then he felt like, because he was, I just triggered him. I had no idea what happened. I think I reminded him of someone. you diffuse it,
0: you're disarming people. Yeah, exactly. Alistair, I wonder if you could just talk a bit about, obviously you've done so much to break down the stigma surrounding mental health and the conversations and the openness around mental health. Could you just briefly touch on how there was perhaps a very different culture your parents day and how you sort to break that down within your own family
1: um well it sort of starts with my family in a way the, my very very first experience of mental illness was when we were in the island where my dad came from in the hebrides tyree and somebody who was on a neighboring croft was being sectioned oh.
2: uh
1: i was only about seven or eight i was absolutely mesmerized by it um, and the you know there's an ambulance, the police who cars. was it? Well, it was a guy called Sydney. Um, and it, what was extraordinary though was this. I, I was watching this thing going on, but nobody quite wanted to say what it was all about. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: mm-hmm. And it's because it quotes you didn't talk about it. So oh, it, was like, it was lots of oh poor Sydney, oh poor Sydney, and whatever. And then I remember my mum, who you know, as Grace will testify, one of the nicest people who ever breathed, and sort of really kind to everybody and what have you. And but she, I remember she had a, a relative who, I now know, had really bad depression and anxiety. But it was always called, you know, she's got, she, oh, she, she's got, she's got a bit of nerves. nerves you know. it was yeah, was always this sort of language. And then what the big turning point for us was when my brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Because then we had to learn about it and just get more stuck in. But even with that, my mum, when I started to get involved in campaigning on mental health, and that was the real reason, was my brother, and my own issues sort of came mm-hmm. later. Um, but my mum was always very, very worried about it. It was almost like, you know... And actually your mum was, Fiona was as well. Mm. When I first started talking about it, she wasn't she wasn't enthusiastic. It was like, why are you putting yourself out there? I felt a really powerful need did to you? do it. I did, yeah. yeah. I felt when I started writing the novels and, and writing the book and doing the documentaries, I felt it inside. I was sort of being pushed to do it. And that's another thing that's great with the kids is that, you know, they're... You know, Grace has talked about anxiety and Callum, who's struggled, you know, is touched wood nine years off alcohol. But, you know, we've had struggles. And I just think the openness is such a big part of the solution. <laughs> so what? I'm just thinking about what? the
2: expose that I'm going to write about you one day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'll pray so tell. we've got this
2: ongoing joke, yeah, that he's like the face of talking about mental health when I come in and I'm, like, convinced to have cancer. Because I have like really bad I- OCD and like terrible health anxiety, he's just like shut the fuck <laughs> up. No, and I'm not sure. up. That's gonna be my expose one day. Is Alice Campbell's not actually? <laughs> no, as no, excuse me. Great I as he it, thinks can I is. just put
1: this in context? <laughs> Fiona and I are lying in bed, fast asleep, and Grace comes in <laughs> to tell us as she's on the phone to nine nine nine, she's having a heart attack. And I said, Grace, you're not having a heart attack. Let us get back to sleep. <laughs> right. Uh, and then <laughs> I, we'd
2: seen I, Daniel Blake, and at the end, you know, not to spoil it, but <laughs> there's a heart attack. And then I had what was called a phantom <laughs> heart attack, really? which is like an empathy, like I woke up in the middle of the night, and I, but it was a panic attack, basically. Anyway, that's another story. Um, I remember when he first told me that he had depression. And then I remember when I then had my first panic attack and it did feel like I had a bit more of an understanding of what this was. Mm. Well, I remember actually I was in Paris and I called my mum and I hadn't slept for two days because I had this panic attack but I thought I'd been drugged so I thought I was like hallucinating. And I called my mum and I described to her what had happened and she said, oh, it sounds like you've got anxiety. I was like, "What is that?" I didn't know what it was. She was like, "Oh, your dad's got that." And my dad did Andrew Marr when we were younger, and he had a panic attack like during the show. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that and thinking, "What the fuck is he doing?" <laughs> Just speak. And then I, you know, as I started to experience it, I really understood what it felt like. I think mm. actually, anxiety, all mental health conditions are so hard to empathise with unless you've felt them, mm. basically, which is why it can be sometimes infuriating. And it's not their fault talking to people who don't know what you're talking about because mm-hmm. it almost think it feels like they're like, "Oh, okay, it's like that it feels like they're sort of talking to you like you're talking about like an imaginary friend right. and they're like not quite understanding it or grasping it, and then you feel you a bit even, more mad. Do you think that's
0: true even now? I
2: think people try so hard, but it is so hard to understand exactly what it feels like. And actually everyone's mental health condition also feels different. It's like mm. my experiences of like anxiety. Will feel really different to his. But it is really difficult. And it's difficult because, say, if I'm sitting here right now, I mean, I'm not right now, but say if I was sitting here right now and then tomorrow I said to you that whole time I was having an out of body experience, you wouldn't have known Mm. because I'm really good at pretending I'm fine. I once did a whole stand up show, the whole show, I wasn't in my body. I was like up there watching myself perform. No one in the audience would have known. So it is hard because, like, P, do you know what i mean Ooh. it's hard to articulate when it's happening cause you don't want like speak on it to make it worse what's the political end result here because you know say
0: in the 30s and 40s you had that momentum towards the formation of the national health service mm. are we heading now towards the formation of a national mental health service
1: well i wish we were not
2: with this government
1: no. not
0: with this government but th- the conversation is changing right and so what's the
1: the goal? I th- look, for me, the, the goal's already there in the National Health Service constitution, which is parity between physical and mental health. And I think a lot of this is about, you know, mental health in the family, mental health in the workplace. But
2: also access to therapy. Yes. I mean, the problem is at the moment, like, it's so hard to get therapy. Talking about your mental health is amazing, right? Talking about it with your friends and family. Talking to a professional is incredibly important, especially if you're in, like, a crisis.
1: Mm. I think it's about serv- The big thing is about services, but I think the attitudes will help shape that. Mm. But at the moment I honestly feel we're going forward on attitudes and backwards on services mm. and that's a real problem.
0: But there is a potential for mental health provision being a vote winner in a totally. sense, Yeah.
1: There's a potential for it to end up saving the government loads and loads and mm. loads of money. I, go, I do mental health stuff in in prisons, and if you go into prison, right, you basically meet people who, in the main, who should be in hospital. Okay, a lot of them may have done bad things, and they're a danger to society. But in part, they're a danger to society because of the lives that they've led and the mental health problems that they're dealing with. But I'll tell you another story. Our um, Callum, our second son, who when he got into trouble with alcohol, and actually, it's interesting about that. When he said the thing about the generational thing, I made a lot of the same mistakes with him that people my the older generation to I be agree. made with me. So even if you have had the experience, it doesn't mm. always help you deal with it well. But when he finally kind of hit his rock bottom, as it were, we got him into this rehab place in Scotland. Very expensive. You know, There was the only way we could do it. And the place was kept going, this place up in Scotland, by the Dutch government. Because the Dutch government were funding their toughest cases of addicts to go there and spend up to six months there to get sorted. Because the Dutch government had worked out, if we don't do that, these people are just going to be in and out of prison, yeah. in and out of the divorce courts, in and out of violence, in and out of all the stuff that they were doing. So they're trying to fix them. Yeah. And that's the attitude to take. Yeah, and we, we have such so a broken
2: view of the relationship between mental health and addiction. And it just yeah. absolutely makes no sense.
0: Okay, so we're going to do the quick fire round Mm. now, okay? So I just want you to each briefly tell me, what was your first political memory, Alistair?
1: First active political memory? Don't
0: say 1997. No, that (laughs) definitely
1: wasn't that. Um, I've got a vague memory of my... I'll tell you one of the funniest... Well, it's not funny because somebody died. I was out in the garden with my dad and my uncle James, and my mum came out and said, Ian McLeod's dead. And Ian McLeod was a member of the Cabinet. And uh, my uncle James said, what, the Pipe Major? Because <laughs> he was <laughs> he was a big bagpipe guy. And I was sort of confused by this Ian McLeod. So I remember Ian McLeod's death. Were they the same words. person? No, not no, at all. Not at all. Totally a totally different, different person. person, yeah. I struggle to, to know what is a real memory and what is a, a learnt memory. So I think I can remember one of Harold Wilson's Elections vividly, but I don't know if that's because I've seen so many pictures of it since. Okay, um, right.
0: And Grace, what about you? I mean, I just, like, probably
2: it's my first th- memory would have been political. <laughs>
1: yeah. No. Well, Your first words were Gary Niddle.
2: That's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of remember being on the steps of the Downing Street the day that Tony Blair became Prime Minister, but that's also because I've seen so many yeah. pictures of me then. I'm not sure if that as a memory. Or it was live on TV. great. It? It's the only video footage I have uh, of me as a child because they d- was so busy they didn't film someone who's going to one day be a really famous comedian. <laughs> <So> there's literally <laughs> no footage. As I, now. I oh do feel. Really I feel I do feel really bad about it's that. Really we bad. We just didn't do like The documentary do it. of my life is just going to start when I'm like 50. Philip
1: Gould's got two <laughs> stuff. Barely of me. Right. No, I don't. No, have we any we d- d- but notes. that's because we're not. We don't. Fiona and I don't quite share this sort of sense of. You know, that everything we do in our life has to be filmed. Sorry,
2: are you joking? <laughs> you it, you sit on Instagram. You film so much more of your life than me. I talk. You
0: sit on okay, Instagram. Okay, right, right, Hang on a minute. Next question. What was your first music purchase and in what format? Because that will date you. Uh,
1: it, was a, it was two singles, Frank and Nancy Sinatra. Then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you. And Mamas and the Papas each night before you go to bed. And it was two vinyl singles. Got no idea how old I was. It was before cool. I left Yorkshire, so it was before I was, I was about nine. Uh-huh.
2: My first CD that I bought or that my mum bought for me was Nellie Nelly and Kelly Rowland, Dilemma. Classic. Mm-hmm. Brilliant.
0: Okay, and what was your first job and what did you get paid?
2: My first job was I started babysitting when I was 14 years old. And what you get
1: paid? hasn't really had a job. <laughs> what are you talking
2: about? I actually had so many jobs. I'm as getting a, a real insight into your dynamic. I dynamics. was such a grafter. <laughs> At one point, I had four waitressing jobs all over London because so I was saving money to go to the Caribbean. But I used to babysit for like five pounds an hour, and I used to make my mum pay me to walk my own dog. <laughs> oh, that's savvy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Alistair.
1: Uh, working on my uncle's farm.
0: What did you get paid?
1: Uh, he was so generous, honestly, my uncle Jim. Every Sunday, I used to work there every summer. And every Sunday, he'd just leave on my bed an envelope with a couple hundred pound notes in it. Really? So generous. What in
2: the like (laughs) nineteen (laughs) thirties?
1: Listen, I was I was a grafter as well. To be fair, all my kids are grafters; they all work.
0: I want to talk about identity politics, and Tony Blair went on. Good morning, Britain. When you were hosting, mm-hmm. and said, "You know, I feel so old now. I've got to the stage in life where I feel like I could say something inappropriate, and I really have to guard what I say." Did he say that? that. Mm. Yeah. Stop it. Do you feel like that? No,
1: I think. Do I feel? Like, no, I don't really. There are some issues where I don't, f- I, and I do say to Grace, like for example, I do f- getting my head around all the trans issues. I find quite difficult. And yeah, s-
2: but he's so... Open, like, we talk about it a lot. So I, I never worry that my dad's going to go on TV and say something. And that, is, that really shows that, like, I think if Tony Blair was my dad, I'd worry. So if you
0: were advising <laughs> Keir Starmer now how to answer the question, what is a woman, what would be your advice?
1: Because
2: well, we had that chat, didn't we, before you did that event with Matt Ford, and we spoke, spoke this through. Yeah, um, I'm, I can't answer the question for you.
1: Go ahead and answer it for me, because I've forgotten. Um... What would I say?
2: Someone who identifies yourself, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd identifies I'd, I'd a woman self as a woman
1: But well, what I do politically, when it's about advice, I'd say, you know, have the words to deal with that as an issue, but do not have that centre stage in your political programme. Not because it doesn't matter, it matters incredibly to the you know, to people who are affected. Because what's happening with this culture politics is that the right, with all this stuff about... I mean, I can't stand... I actually get really angry when people say, oh, you don't know what you can say anymore. I'm not talking about Tony Blair, because I think he was talking about one or two specific things where he thought he didn't quite know how to handle it. But these people who say, oh, you can't say... What what they basically mean, a lot of them, is you can't be racist, Mm. you can't be sexist, and it's not as much fun as it used to be.
0: But you, you famously said and advised Tony Blair once, you know, to say, we don't do God. And it was like, veer off the religion because it's a bit No, that's, uh, that's one
1: of those myths, actually. I, I, it's true that I thought... He loves God. No, I don't. You, we a, love reading
2: the Bible <laughs> of late, In don't we? Really? In German. We In read the Ge- Bible. Oh, my goodness. Okay. The
1: Bible's a great book.
0: <laughs> but getting back onto the council culture, because I think there is a case for saying that the left has abandoned the issues of class for the issues of identity I politics. don't believe that,
1: though. I think Why that not? There may be, because I think there may be some who have, but I think it's a trap that's being laid by the Right. <laughs>
2: Mm. But also a lot of these things do intersect with each other and a lot of the like most marginalized trans people will also be working class because yeah, they don't have exactly. access to some of the resources like that's where i think we sort of forget the nuance the
1: way that sometimes at the moment people talk about trans people it sort of reminds me of you know back few decades
2: say this point it's a really good point when he said this i was like wow say, say the point you're going to say, what was I gonna say? Say it. Well, if it's it might not be the same basically point. what he said at this Matt Ford show, and I was sitting in the audience, Matt Ford started talking about trans people, and I know that I don't agree with a lot of Matt's opinions on this, so I was like, okay, come on, dad, you got this. And he said this thing, which I didn't even tell him to say because I never really thought about this, but it is true. The way Transphobic people now, we will view them in 20 years the same way that we now view yeah. homophobic people in the 80s and They're 90s. Racists. They will be so outdated and it will be embarrassing for them that that was their opinion. Mm. So even though they have the internet and they feel like everyone's on their side, in 10 to 15 years it will be truly tragic and like I'd be embarrassed if my parents mm. or anyone that I'm associated with had had those views 15 it's years ago. It's a
0: bit like looking back at Section 28. Yeah, yeah
2: exactly, scary. exactly, yeah, but exactly. That, that, but so many comes. people at that time thought that that was an appropriate <coughs> thing to be behind. So I think, I mean, that was a really good point that he made because actually a lot of these people are so... They, they feel so defined by this conversation at the moment. Mm. Is it because you don't have enough to talk about? Like, what what is it that you're lacking in your life that you feel that you have to constantly be badgering on about the same thing? But... Like he said, they will soon be very, very embarrassing. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you feel that society is more siloed? I mean, for example, Grace, do you have many friends that are conservatives? Um, do you have I've any friends that are? I've conservatives? got a
2: couple of friends whose parents are conservatives, but none, no friends that have vote, that would vote conservative. No, Elsie, you're smirking. <laughs> <laughs>
1: smirking? Uh, um, I'd say most of my. Rory Stewart, BFF. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, I'd say most yeah, most most of my friends would have politics closer to mine. Uh, but I don't think I define everything by politics. Got a few red lines in our house. What are they? Private education is quite a red line.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I would say I've fallen out with a lot of people on that, even people who would vote Labour. But when I have conversations with people who I'm friends with, and I say, if you send your kids to private schools, we will really fall out
1: about it at the time.
2: <laughs> and what about Brexiteers?
1: <coughs> I've got friends who voted Brexit. Uh, nice. and I'll never let them forget it.
2: No, I've got <laughs> friends who didn't vote, which I also think is just as offensive.
1: But, but I, I don't, I don't see that as crazy. being siloed because they're, they're only siloed if you say that they're utterly defined by their politics. So I've got, I've got a friend I can think of who I know voted Brexit, but my friendship with them is defined by football. Mm. Uh, I've got another person, in, in, you know, not a close friend, but somebody I know who I know voted Brexit, but my, life, my relationship with them is defined by the fact that I see them in the queue at the Lido every morning. <laughs> so we, don't, we don't talk about Brexit, or if we do, it's you know I, remi- I give him another Financial uh, Times cutting, which is a gentle reminder that
0: tr- Twitter is not the real world. Um, I mean, uh, back in the nineteen nineties, Philip Gould defined and man and how important that kind of idea that that person was for New Labour and and giving that person someone to vote for in the aftermath of Thatcher. What do you think the modern equivalent of and man? is
1: oh i don't know i mean uh, those labels are just so sort of difficult and yeah. bit tedious i mean i think i think it's it's i know what philip meant by that it was basically saying that it was the you know the aspirational working class now there are a lot and that's always that should always be who people are thinking about helping Um, helping them to achieve their aspirations. But also
2: that was too narrow. So like the point Mm. is is that that was so specific whereas actually like the definition of that is that there isn't one because there's so many Mm. different versions of it and always have been by the way. It's not like trans people have just started to exist and minorities have just started to exist. They've always existed. They've just like only now had enough sort of like platform, I guess. To but to political
0: like labels are shifting, aren't they? If they're Labour voters that have voted Brexit and mm. now potentially moving to the Tories where historically in their family you know it would be unfathomable to vote a Tory. Because
1: lots of, listen, lots of things have, chaang- have changed, but one of them is that I don't think politics is, a, is as central in people's lives as it was because people have become a bit more disengaged. I think that's a bad thing. I think it's a dangerous thing. Um, but also, I just think Parents perhaps less prescriptive than maybe they were. Um, And people move around a lot more than people are more mobile. Um, So they're open to more influences and and so forth. But I do find it quite extraordinary that Johnson, who I've, you know, his background is, you know, we all know what his background is Eaton and Oxbridge and media and total toff, basically. And yet somehow has managed to make this link with. Mm. Quotes the common man for whom Johnson, in his heart, has complete contempt.
0: But isn't that one of the signals of populism? I mean, whether totally. you look at Trump totally. or you know totally. Boris, it's people of the establishment, establishment that are able to articulate. Yeah. The the views of... I mean, well, just think about the thing
1: with him and and Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer came from a working-class family, had a pretty tough childhood, and yet Johnson feels capable of of dismissing as the metropolitan elite Islington man.
0: I mean, you could argue that Thatcher did that, Blair did that to a certain extent. No,
1: this guy's in a different... The modern politician, Trump, him, Putin, Erdogan, they're in a different league.
0: She did emphasise certain... You know, she'd never really talked about the fact that she married a millionaire and that was the one way that she was (laughs) able to get into politics. talked a lot about her father and living above the shop and all of that. that. I don't
1: don't think that's a significant point. The point is that she had a vision. uh, She knew what she wanted to do with power and she knew why she wanted it, to to make change. I didn't agree with a lot of the change, but I could respect her. I can have no respect for somebody who doesn't really believe in much other than being there Mm. and surrounds himself with these numpties who never ever speak truth to power.
0: So speaking of change then, Grace, what do you think are the political priorities for your generation? What does it feel like is pressing right now?
2: I mean, again, I think it so varies depending on who you are and what your circumstances are. The cost of living is just on a day-to-day having such a deep impact on like all young people and <coughs> it's really hard, especially in London, to get started. I mean, I, ha- I don't know anyone. We're I'm 28 now. I don't know anyone who's bought a house, like, my mm. age, apart from really rich people who are, like, from a lot of money. So I think that is a huge, obviously a huge issue, and it's not getting any better right now. I mean, the environment, it goes without saying, is something that, like, dominates a lot of like a lot of people's minds. But I would say, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently, because I remember when e- even I started using social media, I spoke about politics so much more, than I would now. I don't think I ever really do now. Not because I've switched off, but because we all absolutely just can't deal with it. It's so incredibly infuriating. Right. And almost feels like a drain. And I say this to him a lot. It feels like it drains energy off of me, which I don't then get back. So I'm like, I can't spend so much of my life stressing out about it because then I will just eat myself up. Yeah. Whereas I'd rather like spend my energy on things that will actually That's what they help want, my life. <laughs> But so, Alice, you're writing a book about young people mm. and politics.
0: How would you answer some of the points that Gr- Grace has made? On Th- that I point?
1: totally understand it. I totally understand it. And sometimes I feel like that myself. But I think you have to find a way of resisting it. Because I think if young people don't stay engaged and don't stay a bit angry and, and use that anger to, to fight for change, then this lot keep winning.
0: But then when you're talking about young people, I think you've got to segment them in two different camps really. The kind of young, activists, a lot of time on their hands, quite often quite idealistic, that mm. naivety, beautiful naivety that comes with youth on the one hand, and they're the ones right now on the protests and rallying for climate change and all that. And uh, then you've got uh, by the, the way, young people. I don't think
1: there are enough of them doing that.
0: Well, the protests, not, but there's, where are the protests well, there's the more protests now than there were in the 1960s, believe it or not, in terms of numbers and really? um, yeah, okay. on streets and the amount of protests. Okay. What I think is interesting is you've got this millennial generation who are now actually quite old. We've lived through a financial crash. We entered the workplace when wages stalled and house prices went up. We li- then went through Brexit,
2: mm-hmm.
0: then COVID and now cost of living crisis. You know, our opportunity to get on any kind of ladder Very hard.
1: i think what i would also say is that change often comes through it's interesting if you go through history change often th- comes through pandemic change often comes through war but most change does require political change and i just i think at the moment it suits the interests of the, what i call the bad guys that a lot of the good people are just thinking oh this is so bad i can't engage i've got to duck out of this and i get why they do it Funnily enough, back to the Lido queue with this very nice guy who's a doctor who was there this morning. He said, just to look after myself, I've got to switch off. I can't, I can't watch the news. I can't. I can't otherwise, I just I haven't got enough space in my head to do what I need to do.
0: Yeah, and I think Grace is right. I think there's an exhaustion,
2: particularly, mm. I think, precipitated by Brexit and COVID. If people just have to ultimately look after themselves... Which really is all you can do. Yeah, you know, part of the book before is you <coughs> can try and change the world and do all the things you're talking about, you can't do that if you don't no, feel the, part of the
1: point mentally of the book strong. Is actually, I'll be identifying lots of young people who are doing stuff, who are making change. You know, there's some of them I do find Greta Thunberg just an incredible phenomenon because you can't measure the change, but she she has it's incredible what she's done in terms of using her personality profile, passion, etc. to, you know, to be such a, a voice of change, and then. You, somebody like jack Mon- monroe on food poverty and there's loads of people who are just mm. doing stuff mm. and that will bring change mm. it is change and it will bring more change but ultimately and what i'm saying to lots of people who because uh, i haven't got a title of the book yet but the working title is but what can i do because that's what people ask all the time but what can i do and my answer is always you do whatever you can
2: but you can also bring about change in smaller ways. One of my best friends from schools has been elected to be a councillor in um, like South oh, Hampstead, which yeah. is where, where we're from. Um, and she's someone who's definitely wants to do that on a bigger scale, is very ambitious, but also can see how much impact she can have. Locally. Locally. Mm. Yeah. So I also th- can see that. And he thinks on a much bigger scale, which I understand because that's professionally what you've been doing for such a long time. But you can do that on a very small scale and still feel like you've done something, basically.
0: On that positive note, I want to thank you both for your honesty and your reflections and your insights. And also this fantastic illuminating insight into your relationship. (laughs) Thank you very much. You can hear more from Alistair by listening to his podcast, The Rest is Politics. It's become a must-listen for these chaotic times. And you can see Grace on tour in 2023. Do check out her website for tickets. And to hear more from me, why don't you join thousands of subscribers and sign up to my fortnightly newsletter, where you will have access to exclusive articles and a space to discuss how we're changing as workers, consumers, and citizens. Find out more at www.elizaphilby.com and do check out my content on TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram at Eliza Finally, if you enjoyed this episode of It's All Relative, can I please, please ask that you review and share its contents help spread the word thank you for listening